Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. Living Faith features the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church from our Sunday morning and evening services, as well as our Wednesday night Bible studies for students. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that the lost might be saved and the Christian might be equipped. God's primary tool for this kind of growth is the regular preaching and teaching of His Word. That's why here at First Baptist, our prayer echoes that of the psalm. Above all else, God's Word and God's name should be exalted. This is our new Sunday evening series entitled, What is the Church? I was trying to think of different ways to approach our topic tonight, the Lord's Supper. Much like when I spoke on the Word of God two weeks ago, I, I couldn't bring myself to think of how to talk about the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper in a way that fits within our series, What is the Church? If you take a look at our emblem there as First Baptist Church, the first one, what we discussed two weeks ago, was the Word of God, the Bible icon there. And um, I guess if we're going to go in order, baptism would be next, but since the Lord's Supper was scheduled for this week, I decided let's just talk about it this week and do that. So I'm going to make the order up. We're going from the Bible down to <laughs> communion, then back up to baptism, and then we'll come back and hit uh, the Great Commission and uh, our missions emphasis. So tonight we're looking at the Lord's Supper, and instead of doing a theology of the Lord's Supper or, you know, what happens in the Lord's Supper and, you know, the, the, the elementary stuff of what it means, we're going to cover all of that, but I wanted to do a pragmatic um, working out of the doctrine as far as how it applies to the local church. Because that, that's what we're talking about in this series, what is the church? We're talking about what happens in the church, how the church is governed, what goes on in our worship services, and how all of that is meant by God to upbuild believers, build up believers, encourage believers, edify and equip believers to go out into the world sharing the gospel, people being saved, and then filtering them in and assimilating them into the local church. So we're going to specifically look at tonight the Lord's Supper and how that fits into our identity as a local church and namely First Baptist Church. The text we're going to be looking at is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you know anything about the Corinthian epistles... Paul's writings to the Corinthians. Uh, the two that we have are not nice. Uh, there are nice portions, obviously, but Paul was not writing the Corinthians to congratulate them on what a good job they've been doing as a local church and as Christians. Uh, this first letter to the Corinthians that we know as 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We do not have uh, in existence today, the very first letter, but Paul makes reference to it in 1 Corinthians. But what we do know is that God has preserved and sovereignly ordained that what we have is what we need as the Scripture. So as we look at what Paul told the Corinthians not to do, hopefully we'll gain a little bit better understanding of what to do, what to believe, and what to think in regards to the Lord's Supper. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. And this is going to be very familiar, but follow along. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? 
No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word that speaks so clearly to our situation today even though the Apostle Paul was writing some 2,000 years ago to a a busting church in a metropolis like Corinth. We hear his words, we hear his warnings, his rebukes, his correction. And though they were written so long ago to a people so distant from ourselves, we're not that different from the Corinthians. Help us to see that tonight as we turn our attention to your word and help us to gain and see the importance of the Lord's Supper in the life and the vitality of this local church. By your Spirit, open our eyes to see and understand that which we cannot see and understand on our own. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, from 1 Corinthians, Paul, what not to do with the Lord's Supper. But tonight we're going to look as a local church on how the, local, uh, how the Lord's Supper benefits the local church, how partaking in the Lord's Supper and celebrating this ordinance together benefits us as First Baptist Church here in the year 2015. So here's my proposition tonight. In the local church, the Lord's Supper serves as a source of one, unity, two, proclamation, and three, repentance. So God uses the Lord's Supper in these three ways, and and this is not an exhaustive list. There are many more things the Lord's Supper does for us, but these are the three we're going to look at tonight in terms of the gathered body, the local church, namely First Baptist Church of Avon Park. So let's look quickly here at first uh, the first point. God uses the Lord's Supper as a source of unity within the church. From the the very beginning of this letter to the Corinthians, Paul has been facing and dealing with the issue of unity. He's been dealing with the issue of unity. From chapter 1, Paul says, I hear there are divisions among you. From the very first outset, I appeal to you, brothers, he says in chapter 1, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul uses the word quarrels. There were fights, there were skirmishes over words and over attitudes and over mindsets that were prevailing in the Corinthian church that were preventing unity from existing between one part of the body and another or multiple parts. That's all the way back in chapter 1. We continue to trace this 
through all of 1 Corinthians. Paul points to their unity in Christ regardless of their messenger. It seems that some of their arguments were over who baptized them or who preached to them, who evangelized them. Some say, I'm of Paul. Some say, I'm of Apollos. Some say, I'm of Peter. Some say, I'm just of Jesus. And Paul says, at the end of the day, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave the growth. So Paul nips it in the bud right there in chapter 3. You're arguing over whose disciple you are and who baptized you and who preached the gospel to you and you follow this preacher and you follow this preacher and you follow this preacher. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 that part of this discussion that was going on between people was who was a better speaker. We know that rhetoric and arguing and debating was a big part of Roman, Greco-Roman culture and that people would sometimes get together just to argue with each other for three or four hours. They would go to the city center just to hear each other speak, to hear new ideas. And this was part of that context where people were saying, well, Apollos is a better speaker than Paul or Paul is better than Peter or Peter was better than Paul or whatever camp they decided to land in, it was dividing them and causing contention in the church. And Paul says, Apollos is nothing. Paul is nothing. Peter is nothing. We are just servants alongside of you. Jesus is the one who is the cornerstone and God is the one who gives the growth to everything that we do. So Paul points them to Jesus again and again and emphasizes unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, though, it must be noted that Paul says that this unity cannot come at the expense of truth. Paul prizes unity. Don't, get the, don't, get, don't, don't, get it, don't hear it wrong. Paul loves unity. He wants the Corinthian church to be one in mind and one in spirit and have one purpose and one goal and to love one another. But we see at the very outset of chapter 5 that sexual immorality has crept into the church at Corinth. And Paul does not say, be unified and forgive each other and never mind what so-and-so is doing over there in the corner. And it's a very heinous sin as we see a man has taken his father's wife to be his. Sexual immorality. And Paul doesn't say, okay, well, for the sake of unity, let's just smooth over that and let's just pretend that's not there. No, Paul says, you kick him out. Treat him as a tax collector and a sinner, just like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. Exclude him. We'll come back to that in a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul talks about lawsuits being filed against fellow believers. So we're, here, we're six chapters in and Paul is still exhausting his list of the problems the Corinthians have with one another. From who they're going to follow and who their favorite preacher is. There's sexual immorality there. There's division among them. They're filing lawsuits about one another. Paul is addressing the issue of repentance, of unity, togetherness. With the issue of lawsuits, with the issue of sexual immorality, Paul does not say unity for unity's sake. I think someone have said that if you have unity at the sake of truth, all you have is compromise and capitulation. If you have unity and love and, and peace and grace and all of that without truth, there's no real love and peace and unity even there. You're unified because nobody believes in anything. You're unified because there's no standards. Paul says there are strict standards. And when he says to exclude that one man, he doesn't say exclude him because he's so bad and you're so right. The understanding is that man is in unrepentant sin. 
And in order to truly show him the love of Christ, and in order to work toward unity, you must exclude him for this time. But it's not exclusion for exclusion's sake. Paul advocates exclusion for the sake of repentance. The purpose in excluding that man is that he might see the error of his ways, realize it, and be restored to the unity of the church. So if you ever hear anybody, especially in our modern context, talk about unity and grace and peace and love, especially within Christian circles, if they mean by that that we, do, we no longer preach sin, if they mean by that that we no longer preach law, if they mean by that we no longer preach morals and standards, then they're, not, they're missing the point that Paul has here. It's not unity without truth. It's never unity without truth. There can be no true unity without truth. So make that point very clear. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, as we're moving along, Paul takes the issue up of eating food that's been offered to idols. This is something he's always having to deal with in these Gentile cultures. Okay, You have your one set of problems with the Jewish believers, with circumcision and the law and Moses. When it comes to Gentile believers, okay, those who did not come out of Judaism, but those who are coming out of pagan worship, whether it's the Roman gods or any other of the pagan gods at that time, they're coming out of that and coming to Christ. And let's say you have two people. One has a conviction that I should not eat any of the meat that's been offered to the idols in the temple. Because what they would do is offer the calves and the goats and stuff and sacrifice to Zeus or whomever. And then the leftovers would be kept and sold for a cheap price on the market. So you could buy cheap meat that's been offered to idols. So you have one believer, let's say that's a Gentile, that has a conviction about that. We should not eat the food that's been offered to idols because it's, it's tainted, it's worldly, it's secular, there's something wrong with it. Then you have another believer who says, I don't see any problem with that at all. Zeus doesn't exist. These false gods are just worthless idols. There's nothing real happening in that worship. So we can eat that meat. It's cheap. Go buy it and grill out all day long on that meat. It doesn't matter. So you have contention that happens there because this person thinks they're so holy because they abstain from the meat offered to idols. And you have this person that thinks, well, I'm going to exercise my freedom in Christ regardless of what you think because you're just immature in your thinking. And it creates conflict within the church. Paul has to deal with it in Romans. He deals with it in 1 Corinthians. Um, From chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10, Paul is dealing with this issue of meat offered to idols. But as we come to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and into chapter 11, Paul begins to change the focus away from the issues of disunity concerning those issues, and he points to the Lord's Supper. And you shouldn't miss when Paul turns to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10 and then hits on it again in 1 Corinthians 11, he's almost setting the Lord's Supper up as his chief example and call for Christian unity in the local church. All these 10 chapters have been dealing with one issue of unity after the other, after the other, after the other. And as we come into chapter 10 and chapter 11, and then Paul is going to go on to deal with spiritual gifts and everything else that's calling disunity, he says, first of all, let's tackle this issue of the Lord's Supper. After 10 chapters of addressing everything, Paul turns our attention to the Lord's Supper. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Just look at um, verse 14. This is in the same conversation about meat being offered to idols. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now listen to the illustration he uses. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. 
and then he goes on to talk a little bit more about offering food or eating food offered to idols. And then he comes back to the Lord's Supper in the middle of chapter 11. So Paul is setting the Lord's Supper up as this supreme chief example and demonstration, if you will, of unity and love and peace and fellowship within the church. Regardless of all these other divisions, whether it's meat offered to idols or head coverings for women or contentions or who's the best speaker, who's the best preacher, Paul says you come together on the Lord's Supper and this is how you're doing it and you're doing it wrong. So by looking at this, hopefully we can see how to do it right. Look in uh, chapter 11 again, back to our text for this evening in verse 18. We hear an echo of chapter 1. Paul in chapter 1 said, I hear there are divisions among you. Here in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, Paul says it again. Look in the middle there. I hear that there are divisions among you. What was the source of the division here in the Corinthian church? Well, in this time, in the Greco-Roman world, it was pretty commonplace for there to be a big meal in the late afternoon. This was kind of your lunch supper combined. Wealthy families would have multiple courses from appetizers and soups to the main courses and desserts. Poor families would just sit down and eat what they could have, whether it's bread or fish or whatever they could muster up. It was common in that time, though, for that late afternoon meal to be the big meal. Do you remember our discussion from Acts chapter 2 about how the the church began to act after those 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost? Remember the four things we said that the early church did when we talked about what is the church in week one? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So this fellowship breaking of bread thing might have happened during that common mealtime. And we know after that that believers were starting to meet every day, not just on the first day of the week when they celebrated Jesus' resurrection, but believers were in each other's homes every single day, breaking bread and fellowshipping and praying and listening to the teaching of the apostles or maybe reading a, a circulating copy of one of Paul or Peter's letters. That's how they were having church. They were meeting together and eating this big meal and fellowshipping with one another. So how does this relate to the modern church? We don't, you know, we're, we're here for a, a little snack about that big and a little bit of juice about that big. So when we see that Paul's talking about people getting there and getting their fill, how does that apply to us? They're getting their fill, they're getting drunk. What's going on there? They're, they're having this big meal and the rich people, as you can imagine, they're having this big potluck every day. The rich folks are bringing their expensive wine and their bread and their cheeses and their meats and they're all sitting down around one table and sharing all the good food together. And all the poor people, as you can imagine, are bringing less, maybe sacrificially bringing. You ever thought about that? Br- bringing stuff beyond what they could probably feed their family with for the sake of the local church. They're bringing it And they're being secluded to the side, eating their measly pieces of bread and fish or whatever they could find. Maybe no wine, just water. And Paul is saying, don't you see what's happening? You're saying you're coming together to fellowship and to break bread together and to remember the Lord and his last supper and his sacrifice. But all the wealthy people are over here and they're getting their fill of the good food and they're getting drunk on the wine. And the people over here are going home hungry. Paul says the people over here, it's like they're having their own private dinner to the exclusion of the needy and the poor and Paul says that's causing division it's causing a division on the lines of class and economic wealth the rich are getting their fill and the poor are getting nothing 
And so Paul says, you think you're doing something when you're coming together and eating like this, but you're actually not doing anything but eating and drinking condemnation on yourself because you're failing to understand the point for which you've even come together in the first place. You're failing to even get the big picture. So we're not sitting here tonight doing that, though. Uh, affluent among us have not brought steak and potatoes and, and wine at one table, and, and we have bread and, uh, I don't know, ketchup at the, other ta- at the other table. You know, we're not doing that. We're, we're all coming to the one thing. We're, we're eating the one little wafer and the one, one little glass of juice that's never enough to get that taste out of your mouth. So how does this apply to us? How do we read something like this about people getting filled and drunk and going home hungry and we're all coming here to eat this and how do we apply what's going on here to what's going on today? We don't actually celebrate the Lord's Supper in a meal like this. We typically have enough for everyone. No one's coming here necessarily hungry and certainly no one's going away filled. So how do we apply this to ourselves? Number one, We can lay aside personal preferences. The whole issue here is um, humility, isn't it? Humility and self-sacrifice and selflessness. That's the whole issue that Paul is addressing. Number one, we can lay aside our personal differences. What kind of personal differences or personal preferences, excuse me, what kind of personal preferences do we have in the modern church? It could be various opinions on the scripture, Theology can be judgments founded or unfounded about one another. I mean, everybody does that as humans. We judge each other, whether we know each other or not. We do judge books by their cover. Number three, it could be differences in style, whether it's worship style or how the service is laid out or how someone preaches or how someone teaches or how we arrange the songs we sing or how I preach or how we do the Lord's Supper, whether you like the gold plates or the silver plates or any number of preferences we could have about style and preference. How about four secondary or even tertiary, secondary or third level doctrinal differences? Let me ask you a question. Does everybody in this room 100% agree with everybody else in this room on every single, single small point of Christian doctrine. No. And it's never going to happen. This is one of the things we can lay aside. This is one of the things we can sacrifice for one another. We can have preferences and opinions and interpretations but still come together as the body of Christ, uniting under the big things. That's number two. We can have unity in the things that hold us together. Number one, the gospel. Number one on that list of things that hold us together is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. If you don't agree 100% with that statement, you do not belong in a church. (laughs) We can minister to you and evangelize you, and then you can believe the gospel. But unless you believe the gospel, you're not even part of the church. So, of course, that's something that holds us together. Number two, the the lordship of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything, Master and Savior and God. We believe the scriptures. We might have different interpretations of some parts of it. And God has called the church to have a a system of authority and eldership so that there are interpretations that prevail, but we can all have different interpretations and skews on scripture. We can be united in our love for one another. 
Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And then thirdly here, we can serve one another. So lay aside personal preferences, unity in the things that hold us together. And three, we can serve one another. Look at verse 33 right here in 1 Corinthians 11. All the way to verse 33. After going through everything else that we're going to go through in a minute, Paul comes back to this in verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. It's just a simple little phrase, and then you could just pass over that as just kind of Paul's closing thought. But you missed the whole point there. That's what Paul is talking about in the first place. These guys are going ahead and getting their fill, and these guys are getting nothing. So, solution, wait for one another. What the wealthy bring, wait for the poor to get there so they can have it too. That's the whole point of the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. Number two, putting another's needs and preferences above our own. Obviously, this is like getting back to personal preferences and differences and styles. But I think about something I heard um, at our church when we, we attended a church for a little while in seminary. And one of the things they said was, the person in front of you, you might not like a song that we sing on any given Sunday morning or Sunday evening or whenever. You might not like it at all. You might hate it. But you never know if the person beside you or in behind you or in front of you, that just might be their song. And they might love it for whatever reason. You don't understand it. You don't get it. But you know what you're doing if you refuse to sing? You know what you're doing when you, when you put your hands in your pocket and you hate that song and I'm, not, I'm just not even going to participate? You are robbing the person in front of you or beside you or wherever of the joy of hearing God's truth sung over them through someone else's voice. You're robbing them of that blessing and that privilege. That's one way you can serve one another in the local church. How about serving one another out of humility and gratitude for Christ? To look at that, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Look at serving each other out of humility and love for Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning right there in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love and any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Christ is the supreme example of setting aside personal preferences and comfort in order to love and serve those who least deserved it. Christ is the ultimate example of this. Paul, in a, in a situation very similar to that of 1 Corinthians, be of the same mind, have the same spirit, be unified in brotherly love and affection and grace and mercy with one another. 
for Christ's sake. Have this mind in you which was in Jesus. We often like to pick up, we often like to pick up right there in the middle of Philippians chapter 2, don't we? We like the part about him being in the form of God and humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death and being exalted to the right hand of God that at the name of Jesus every knee in heaven and on earth shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We love that part, but we sometimes don't see how Paul is setting that up. He sets it up by saying, You be like Jesus in that he had all of that. He had glory and innumerable angels always attending him and worshiping and serving him. He had face-to-face communication and fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Unbroken love and joy and peace and glory and majesty and honor. Yet he left all of that and came down left the prerogatives of godhood. He didn't abandon his godhood, but he left the prerogatives, the privileges, the glory, the majesty, the honor, and he came down and became like us. Have that mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself for the sake of others. That's Paul's point. And he goes to the same place. Didn't you see how he did that? Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Love one another, be humble, Humble yourselves in one another, serve one another, love one another, have grace for one another, just like Jesus did for you because he came down and died for you. Same thing happens in 1 Corinthians 11. Have the same mind. These divisions ought not to be. You're hurting the feelings, literally. You're grieving the Holy Spirit by being this way at one another. And just like in Philippians chapter 2, Paul points to the sacrifice that Jesus made That's why number two tonight, in the local church, the Lord's Supper serves as a source of proclamation. The Lord's Supper serves as a source of proclamation. Just like in Philippians, be humble, love one another, serve one another, just like Jesus served you. Same thing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Do not be divided, and then he begins to tell us why. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, right there in the middle. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in Philippians, to make the case for humility, he pointed to Jesus who gave himself for us. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, to make the case for humility, he points to Jesus who gave himself for us. And Paul directly correlates words from three of the four Gospels as far as the institution of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus assembles in the upper room as part of a Passover feast and celebrates a Passover meal with his disciples. But instead of following the traditional Jewish liturgy of the Red Sea crossing and the Passover in Egypt and the lamb's blood on the doorpost, Jesus completely changes everything and says, this bread is my body and this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And, Paul, and, and Jesus completely shifts there. John gives another account, the, the Apostle John in his gospel. He doesn't tell about the Last Supper necessarily, but he tells us about something else that was happening that night. After the supper, Jesus took his robe off, knelt down and washed his disciples' feet, serving them in a very degrading and humiliating way. The picture's the same. I'm about to give my body and my blood for you, 
That's what was being symbolized in the washing of the feet. Exactly what Paul was saying there in Philippians chapter 2, that he had everything. He was clothed in glory and splendor, but he stooped down and became like a servant. That's exactly what Jesus is showing us when he takes off his outer garment and kneels down and washes his disciples' feet. He shows them how he's going to save them by becoming a servant. And Paul is saying, all this division, all this disunity will be quickly solved if we focus in on Jesus who humbled himself for those who did not deserve it, who got down on his knees and washed filthy feet, even though he could be attending a worship service in his honor in heaven, he became nothing. The same thing happens when he points to the bread. Number one, the bread points to the broken body of the Lord. The bread shows us the broken body of the Lord. The wine points us to his shed blood. So just like that washing of the feet, Jesus was performing a sign, a symbol, a symbolic act. In this case, this bread and this wine are signs of something else. They point beyond themselves. Just like him washing his disciples' feet wasn't an end in itself. That wasn't, that's, he wasn't just washing their feet to be nice. He was showing them something. This is how I have served you. I've come all the way down from glory to serve you in this humiliating way. Not washing their feet, but taking their sin to a cross and dying. A criminal's death. In the same way, the bread and the wine are not an end in themselves. We don't just eat this stuff and think nice thoughts and everything's fine. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. The Lord's Supper is two elements, two simple, ordinary, plain, everyday elements that point beyond themselves to something glorious and heavenly and majestic. I want to briefly talk about the four views of the elements. I don't have time to go into uh, too much detail on it, but I do want you to understand the categories we're talking about. Number one is the Roman Catholic view. When it comes to the bread and the wine, they believe in something called transubstantiation. That's a big word that just means change in the substance. Transubstantum, so change in the substance. So Roman Catholics... When they observe the Mass, when they celebrate the Mass, and the priest offers the, the host, they call it, the big chunk of bread up in the air, and then he says, Hoc est corpus meum. He says the magic words, This is my body. There's a bell that's rung, and in that moment, they say that the Lord performs a miracle in turning that consecrated bread into the literal, physical body of Christ. And the same for the wine. That's his blood. Now, it still tastes like bread and wine. It still smells like bread and wine. And if it hits the floor, it sounds like bread hitting the floor. But they call this the miracle of transubstantiation. Although it looks like bread and wine, it is now literally and physically the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Number two, we come along to the Lutheran view. Obviously, when the Protestant Reformation broke out in the 1500s, Luther and many of the reformers hearkened back to some of the early church teachings, and one of those he liked to latch on to was called consubstantiation. You can see the same root at the end there. Substantiation means the substance. But Luther said there's no change necessary. There's no magic words that the priest has to say for there to be a change, a trans in the substance. The word con means with, so that the body and blood of Christ are with the elements. There's no change necessary. He's just there. 
Now, Luther did believe it was a physical presence. So for Lutherans who know what they're talking about, if they're eating the bread and drinking the juice, they believe they are literally and physically eating the body and blood of Christ, much in the same way Roman Catholicism teaches. They just don't have what Luther called the unnecessary miracle. They don't need the priest saying the words. Luther said the way you receive the body and blood of Christ is by faith. So the person's faith is what makes the change, not the priest. That make sense? Number three is the spiritual presence view. This means that the bread and the wine communicate the body and blood of Jesus in a spiritual way to those who receive it by faith. It's not physical, but it's also considered a real presence view. In other words, it's not number four, which is the memorialist view. Memorialism teaches that there's no presence spiritual or physical or anything else. There's no mystery. There's nothing really necessarily happening here. It's simply a symbol. It's simply symbolic. It's simply a memorial of what Jesus did. All we do in this supper, according to memorialism, is simply remember what Jesus did, and we receive grace through that. So spiritual presence is just one step kind of between the physical presence and that no presence. It's the spiritual conveyance of Christ's body and blood. Look at 1 Corinthians 10 again. Let's take a closer look at those two verses I read earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This word that Paul is using for participation, some of you might have heard or even be familiar with, and that's the word koinonia. Koinonia just means fellowship, that we're sharing in, we're partaking with. There's a participation that's going on with the body of Christ when we receive the bread. There's a fellowship that's going on, a fellowship, a coming together, a sharing, a communion that takes place with the blood of Christ when we take the cup. Through the Lord's Supper, we enter into the story of Jesus again. We enter into it, we're rehearsing it, we're remembering it for sure. We are memorializing his death, we are remembering his death, but we can't stop there. Paul does not stop there. He doesn't say this is just. I hate the word just when it comes to the sacraments of the church. I hate the word just. Anytime you use the word just, you're belittling something. We say that the Lord's Supper is just a symbol. It's like a right there in the heart. Of course, it's not just a symbol. It's a fellowship. It's a participation. You don't agree with me right there. First Corinthians chapter 10. It's a participation, a sharing in the body and blood of Christ. Now, we can't go too far. Christ's physical body and blood are in heaven. He has now been resurrected. He's glorified. He's 100% human still, and he'll be 100% human through all eternity. But that humanity, that flesh is in heaven, exalted and glorified at the right hand of God. It can no longer come down and be here in plates and in our mouths, no matter how we explain it. But it also has to be just more. I mean, it just has to be more than just a symbol, just something we do, and there's nothing transpiring between us and God. There's something happening there. And I think that's what Paul means to say when he says there's a participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's a spiritual participation. 
And yes, it can only be received by faith. Unlike Roman Catholicism, we don't believe that someone can walk in off the street with no faith in Christ, no knowledge of the gospel, come down here and have bread and juice and receive anything from it. For Roman Catholicism, it doesn't matter what the person walking in thinks or believes because the priest has consecrated the host and it's Jesus. So when they eat it, no matter what they believe, they're getting Jesus. For Protestants, we receive Christ in the sacraments by faith and only by faith. Look at John chapter 6. I think this might help us understand what we're talking about here a little more too. John chapter 6, verse 48. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, obviously, we're not going to take the Roman Catholic position and say that this is real, physical eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. We don't believe that. I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. I think if you couple what Jesus is saying here with what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, you see what Jesus is talking about. There's not some mystical, magical thing that has to happen where we literally eat Jesus. It says right there in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He's being symbolic and metaphorical. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats, whoever partakes of me, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will have eternal life. So what Jesus is simply saying is in the Lord's Supper, I think he's meaning to draw that correlation, and I think Paul pushes it there too in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We participate with Jesus in his death, in his body, in his blood, spiritually and by faith, when we approach the Lord's table. It's not a physical, weird chewing on Jesus. There was a a controversy that erupted in the Reformation right after the Reformation started, in which Lutherans, who still believed in the physical presence, remember, they were debating whether or not you should chew the bread because it's the body of Christ. Now, you have to remember that these people in the Reformation, for the long, longest time, the Roman Catholic Church has not allowed anybody to even eat the bread. The priest just did it for them. People didn't even go to church anymore. They just let the priest perform the mass. They ate the bread. It was done on their behalf, and that's fine. They didn't even give the bread or the wine, let alone to the people. So in the Reformation, when they're starting to actually give the people the bread and wine again, and they don't know what to do with themselves... And they believe in this physical presence. There's this whole argument that erupts as to whether or not we should, we should chew it. And it sounds silly to us, but they're trying to come to grips with what this means to fellowship with the body and the blood of Christ. Very simply, we feed on Christ in the supper only as we approach him by faith and we receive the good things he's promised us in the gospel. You can imagine a child that knows his parents love him. His parents tell him every day, that they love him. He tells his parents every day that he loves them. The fact of love is known between them. They have stated their love for one another. They've shown their love in different ways. Now imagine suddenly that one of those parents scoops their child up in their arms, hugs them really closely, swings them around in the air, kisses them on the cheek, and then says, 
you know I love you. There's a difference there, isn't it? There's a confirmation that goes deeper than just the statement. And isn't God so wise and so wonderful that he would give us something tangible like that through baptism, through the Lord's Supper? That we don't just have to only hear the gospel, although that would be enough. Faith comes by hearing. We don't just hear it, but God says you can see it and you can hold it and you can feel it and you can taste it and smell it. God knows that we're tangible, touchy creatures and we need stuff. We need confirmation. We need signs. We need things. And God has said in his grace, okay, three simple things. Water, wine, and bread. And that's how I'll tell you to your senses that you belong to me. So what do we proclaim? We proclaim that Christ has died for our sins and taken on himself the penalty of God's wrath to us. That on the cross, his body was broken for us. On the cross, his blood was shed for us. That he drank the cup we couldn't drink and drained it dry. And Paul says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't want you to miss that part. How often do you think Paul would want Christians, or for how long do you think Paul would want Christians to celebrate the Lord's Supper after he gave them this? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's not only a looking back and remembering what Jesus has done for us. It's a looking forward to Jesus coming again. Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what this all points to. When Jesus comes back, there won't be just a little wafer and a little thimble of juice. The Old Testament prophets say that there will be wine dripping from the mountains, sweet wine overflowing like floods. That's what this points to. It's just a small little taste of the glory that is to come. Lastly and very shortly, the local church, the Lord's Supper, serves as a source of repentance. I don't have to read you what Paul says, but he says, let a man examine himself. Let a person examine himself before coming to the Lord's table. Here's what this does not mean. It does not mean that we're perfect. It does not mean that we're sinless. We are not perfect. We are not sinless. The supper is for weak people. The supper is for sick people. The supper is for sinners. Why else would Jesus say, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Why would he say, come and eat, that you will not be hungry again? Come and drink freely, and you will not be thirsty again. The Lord's Supper is for the weary sinner, but it's for the sinner, like that man in the temple who beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it means to approach in a worthy manner. We'll never be good enough. We'll never have done enough good things to make ourselves feel important enough to be worthy in that sense of taking of this table and eating from the hands of our Lord. But we come worthy when we say, I'm a sinner. Four quick things on this. One, I'm just going to go right through them. This affects our view of God. This affects our view of God. He's holy, he's righteous, and sinless. Two, it affects our view of ourselves. We are sinners, we're depraved, we do not deserve anything. And three, this affects our view of others. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after going through a long list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul, in order to curb our, our pride, he quickly says, but such were some of you. You know what I'm talking about, right? Neither sexually immoral, not the homosexual, not the thief, not the liar, the adulterer, the idolater, not the sorcerer, not the false worshiper. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. To come in a worthy manner to the Lord's table means to have a right view of God, holy, perfect, righteous, to have a a right view of ourselves, sinful, undeserving, depraved, and to have a right view of others, that we're all sinners. Such were some of us, but we were washed, we were changed. Nothing about us saved us. It's what God did. He saved us. So as we look around in our sanctuary tonight and we come to the Lord's table together, we don't look at anyone who has it all together. But to come in a worthy manner means to come, like Martin Luther said, as a beggar simply telling another beggar where to find bread. And Jesus stands here at this table and says, I am the bread of life. Any man who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. That's all for this edition of Living Faith. Stay connected to the teaching and preaching ministry of First Baptist Church by subscribing to this weekly podcast using your computer or mobile device. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet every Sunday for worship at 1045 a.m. and 6 o'clock p.m. We invite you to join us if you don't currently have a church home and are looking for a place where the Word of God is proclaimed with power and clarity. You can find access to all of this and much more by visiting our website at fbcap.net. We look forward to connecting with you. Until then, this is Living Faith.